There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. This weekend, the Cannes Film Festival will hand out its prestigious Palme d'Or, whose past winners include Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver 45 years ago. I spoke with screenwriter Paul Schrader, who created the character of Travis Bickle for Taxi Driver, adapted Jake LaMotta's biography into Raging Bull, and directed Ethan Hawke in First Reformed. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. You're welcome. I want to open by by saying that I um, I really enjoyed uh, your your choice there, the final song choice of Leaning. Was that a was that a conscious reference to Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum? Um, no, actually, it was a conscious reference to George Beverly Shea, who was the primary singer for the Billy Graham Crusade, and who I uh, was raised on. Uh, you know that song. I my, my father would play it over and over again, so that's where it came in. Awesome. And talk about sort of um, the meaning behind that in Final Embrace. Obviously, um, Ethan. Both of them are dealing dealing with loss to some extent, right? Ethan Hawke's character, the priest, um, has has buried a son due to war. Uh, Amanda Seyfried's character, you know, is also dealing with loss in her life um, over tragedy, suicide, depression. Um, what, is, what does that final embrace entail to you? Is that both of them, um, not only romantically, but, but on a deeper level of them overcoming their, their respective losses? Well, it is meant to be read in different ways. Uh, if you wanted to say, I believe he's dead and he's imagining this, I wouldn't object. If you wanted to say it's a miracle, I wouldn't object. If you want to say um, it is uh, a redemption, I wouldn't object. In fact, I don't know the answer. It's all those things put together. I love that. It's, yeah, it can, it's, it's beautifully ambiguous in that way. Now, as the camera's circling around them, I, you know, as a movie buff, I, I go right to Hitchcock yeah, and Vertigo, and, and I know you wrote, didn't you write Obsession for De Palma, too, yes. which was kind of a takeoff, or similar yeah. to Vertigo, yeah. too, an homage. Um, is that what you had in mind with the circling camera? Well, this is a, a very static film. This is a kind of spiritual film. The camera does not move. And it doesn't even pan. It doesn't even tilt. You know, and it just sits there. And uh, it's, it is very passive-aggressive. It takes too long to do everything. <laughs> then all of a sudden at the end, it jumps like a, a bird from a cage. And it jumps into this kinetic whirligig of a soul in flight. You know, that's a, a rather... Um, ponderous way but that's, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm all about it so is it what, what, what draws you to to that static camera I mean it, it's like a, I mean 
it can work. We've seen like Ozu do it in the Japanese films. We've seen Jarmusch do it. Um, but wh- why, what draws you to it? Is it just allow, allowing us, the audience, to sit patiently and scan the image with our eyes? Yeah, I mean, I, I've never used it before. I've always used the loved camera movement. But when you start working on the spiritual side of the street and the still side of the street, uh, you do have to stretch out time. And one of the ways you do that is with a static camera and with all other withholding devices. And you, you start fooling around with the viewer's perception of time and so that they start to have a durational experience rather than a purely kinetic one. Speaking of camera, I have to drop this in there. Um, my good friend from film school, Steve Tringali, was your first AC on the Canyons. He, so he knows your camera really well, so he says hi. All right, get it back on point. Um, why, why cast Ethan? Why was he such an uh, intriguing cast for, for this role for you? I mean, he's done so many great movies, but why, when you wrote this, were you like, he's, he's the one? Well, you know, uh, there's a certain physiognomy involved in a, a troubled man of the cloth. Uh, whether it be Montgomery Clift and I Confess, or Belmondo and Pierre Morin, or Claude Ledoux and Country Priest. And uh, so, you know, you're thinking about actors who have that physiognomy, you know, maybe Jake Gyllenhaal, maybe Oscar Isaac. But Ethan was 10 years older than them, and his uh, face was getting some very interesting wrinkles. And so I started thinking, you know, I think he's just right for this. And I sent him the script, and he responded right away. And so, yeah, awesome. And thematically, um, did you, you did you grow up? I think you grew up in a, a church that actually had reformed in the title, obviously. But uh, take t- take me into your own spiritual um, connection to writing that that subject matter. Uh, yeah, well, well, I'm a product of the Christian Reformed Church in West Michigan, uh, Westside Christian School, Grand Rapids Christian High, Calvin College Seminary. So, I mean, this is, this is how my program, my, my computer was programmed. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't really, you can't, you don't really get a chance to reprogram yourself. Right. So that's, that was uh, my background. And, uh, and I came to cinema through that background. I, and because I started seeing these films by Bergman and you were seeing films that were, uh, wrestling with the same issues. Like Winter Light and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, Through a Glass Darkly was the first one I saw. Yeah. And they're wrestling with the same issues as, um, as you are in catechism and in school and so forth. And then in terms of, and to me, I think that, makes you int- that background makes you an interesting position to take on this material because um, it's, it's fascinating. We have, we have, here we have this, this uh, you know, member of the clergy who's you know, wrestling with his own things biblically, faith and doubt, like Bergman. But what you bring, interestingly, is tying in the eco-terrorists, the, the environmental issues. Talk about how that's a fascinating um, juxtaposition between spirituality and the environment. You know, if it's God's creation, we should be taking care of it. And- yeah, well, and that's the notion of Christian stewardship. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, and there is, you know, one character in the movie says he, he says you know we've got to do something, and the character says well maybe this is God's plan. He said what do you mean it's God's plan to destroy His creation, and the other character says well he did once for forty days and forty nights. And it looks like that outside right now. It's raining. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one day it's going to wash this gum off these streets. But um, you know. Humankind has been having a, a, a dialogue for uh, 
10,000 years. You know, why are we here? Where are we going? But it was always a hypothetical conversation. You know, you would have it, your kids would have it, and their kids would have it. And there would never be an answer. Well, now, for the first time in the history of the race, it's starting to look like it's maybe not a hypothetical question. Well, that's an intense amount of gravitas, and, and, it ha and you know it has to weigh on everybody, and, and it starts to define um, your other types of despair. And the obviously the most striking image that that has lingered with me for weeks since I left that theater. You know what I'm going to say is when he wraps himself in the the barbed wire and is about to drink the what is it motor oil or something or uh, fluid. Grant Drano, um, is that is that sort of a self-purgation moment? Is that is that you know like the the barb the the thorns on the crown? Is it something like that? Is that, well, is that him it, cleansing it, himself? It's actually a reference to Flannery O'Connor, Wise Blood, and John Huston, where right. Hazel Moats at the end of that book. Uh, puts his eyes out with lie and wraps himself up in wire and goes out preaching on the street. <laughs> awesome. But what to Ethan's character? Where is he in that moment? He's in he's in despair. And I, like you said, I guess I guess it's uh, it, the end could be read as a <laughs> as a dream or uh, whatever his last you know wish well, list. But well, I mean, he was going to uh, blow up the church, yeah. and then this pregnant woman arrives, uh, and he can't do it. And so now he reverts to turning himself into the, the sacrifice. And this is a, a, a pathological fallacy that is deeply embedded in Christianity, the notion of suicidal glory, the notion that my own suffering can make me, uh, can redeem me. Uh, it's not what the Bible teaches, it's not what Jesus taught, but it is understandable as a, uh, a fallacy, mm -hmm. and it is Virtually the same as jihadism, you know. Uh, it's the same. It's the same. That's the extremity part. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, I, of course, watching that part, I mean, he's he's right on the razor's edge of eco terrorism at the end. Um, I, I couldn't help, obviously, of think of your your masterpiece, Taxi Driver, where you know Bickle is. Well, yes, like, he's also holding his hand over a flame, too, right? There's a little purgation there, too, which I guess Marty also did in Mean Streets with uh, Kaitel. Both in Taxi Driver and here, we have a protagonist that come close to committing an act of terror and are ultimately stopped, I guess in De, in De Niro's case, in that it's, it's he just, the Secret Service sees him. But he does turn for good at the end, or at least we think. But in the, and in this, it happens the same way, too. So it, what do you think that is? And this is just me, reporter, critic, trying to draw through lines and auteurs and having fun with it. But um, is, is there something with you that is fascinating with the idea of living on that you know, knife's edge where we, any of us could become a terrorist at any time and our better angels can save us? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have been interested in, in the pathology of suicidal glory. And I even went to Japan and did a film on Yukio Mishima, uh, who also was afflicted by that, even though he was a successful uh, author. So obviously there's something in my Christian upbringing that uh, keeps drawing me back. I gotta ask you about um, one more about Taxi Driver. Is it apocryphal that De Niro came up with um, you talking to me, like improv in front of the mirror, or was there any semblance of that in the script? And how did you kind of meld those two? Well, it's not improv. I mean, but he did come up with it. In the script, it just says he looked at the mirror, he talks to himself, takes out his gun, points it, and uh, he asked me, you know, what does he say? And I said, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, um, you, you know make something up and so he came up with that 
So that's why you guys are on set? He, he comes and asks you that? Or is that like, wow, in pre-production? No, I, I, he, he gives me a call. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. And he's, you know, it's, it's coming up in a few weeks, that scene. And you know, he, he wants to ask you what I had in mind. Awesome. And then uh, one final Marty question. I got to ask you also about Raging Bull because that final, God, that speech is still, it still rings in my ears. I mean, was it? And though I'm no Olivier, if he fought Sugar Ray, he would say that the thing ain't the ring, it's the play. So give me a stage where the bull here can rage. And though I can fight, I'd much rather recite. That's entertainment. You wrote those words. The hand sitting here fiddling with this coffee cup wrote those words. Memories of that, and I mean, you're, you, on the one hand, you've got to come up with this poetic speech for that movie, for the bookends. On the other hand, he's got to sound kind of punch drunk and like a cheap failure, and that's, that's, a, that's an amazing all-timer to me. Well, I hate to burst your bubble. <laughs> burst away. Um, Jake, the real Jake Labata, did in fact have this kind of cabaret show. That was in the book? And that was in the book, yeah. <laughs> that exact speech? Uh, more or less. <laughs> Well, talk about adapting from the book then for, for Raging Bull. How did you actually take that book and, and, and adapt it then? How, how, much did, how much of that did Marty help you on, or how much well, of that was I your mean, straight there was, a, there was a script that Mark Martin had written, and then Bob asked me to rewrite it. And, but Jake uh, disliked his brother, Joey, so much that he, took, he cut Joey out of his own autobiography. So there is no Joey in the book. And so I started doing research, and I, I said, oh, this is simply the story. That's pretty telling you would cut him out, actually. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I, I wasn't interested in boxing. And I said, you know, I said to Marty, you're not interested in boxing. Why do, you, why do you want to do this? So he said, oh, Bob wants to do it. But once I realized it was a sibling story, not a boxing story, I knew how to write it. Is it also true you took a crack at Close Encounters as well early on? Uh, well, I, well, I wrote the original script. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, it uh, deviated from that, and uh, I, uh, I was persuaded not to uh, arbitrate for credit. <laughs> nice. What, what would be, looking back on it hindsight, what would be the most rewarding um, experience, you think, either as a, a writer or a director? Is there, is there a certain project that really, um, even if it's an underrated one, no one's really know, heard about, or something you've directed? And, and where does First Reform sort of fit into that? Well, I think First Reform is, is probably that film. Uh, you know, there's a lot of gratification. It feels like, you know, things I've been dealing with and thinking about for 50 years have come full circle. Do you view this sort of as your Bergman asked and Dreyer and all that? I mean, is this is that? It sounds like you really love those and and were very inspired by them growing up. Is this your entry in that sort of canon in that vein? Uh, yes, of course. I didn't see them growing up because I saw them as a college student because I didn't see any movies growing up. Uh, and but it was now a chance to return to the type of movie that was played when I first fell in love with movies, i.e. when I, went, I was in college. What, other, what advice would you have for other up-and-coming writers, uh, screenwriters? I know that's such a broad question, but in terms of, fig- first of all, figuring out what stories they want to tell. You've done some great social commentaries, including this, Taxi Driver, all the others. What advice would you be in finding the story that they want to write? Uh... You know, the first advice is that if you can find any modicum of happiness doing anything else, do it. <laughs> and, uh, and the second is um, uh, be be fearless. Be fearless. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of cunning is also involved and a lot of luck. But, uh, uh, you know, the only way you find out is uh, by trying 
Now, you also did, you were in my shoes at one point as a film critic back in the day, too. And you know, you knew Pauline Kael, too, the great Pauline Kael. Um, she said that she, you know, would, would never see a movie twice. She, she got it once. I, as much as I love her and I'm a legend in the industry, I kind of disagree. I think that sometimes, I mean, you can get a sense whether it's a great movie, but I think you can't truly tell until you've seen it twice. Like, I think seeing First Reformed, you, now, once, once you know the ending, you can pick up on the breadcrumbs, you know what I mean? So where, what do you, where do you come on that sort of idea? I, I didn't agree with that either. Um, but she, uh, she felt that her first hit on a movie was the defining one. And, uh, but uh, I think she was wrong. How do you think being a critic helped, and, and then also a screenwriter before you even became a director, but how, how do you think that sort of helped you going forward in the filmmaking? Um, because a lot of directors have never done the criticism, and a lot of critics have never tried to make a movie, so it's so easy for them to pile on. And I just say, when was the last movie you made, bud? You know, I hate, that's why I hate people get snobby about movies. But it, you know, go try to make a movie first and then review a movie. But how much do you think the, the crossover there actually helped, no, I guess, to... It doesn't help, it hurts. Uh, and you have to be very careful because a critic is like a medical examiner. He wants to get that body on the table and wants to open it up, find out how it lived. And the filmmaker is like a pregnant woman, and all she wants to do is give life to this thing inside of her. So if you let the critic into the birthing room, he will kill that baby. Well, to tie it all together in closing with uh, that analogy, maybe it'll be like the end of First Reformed where where the filmmaker is that pregnant woman coming into the church and the critic is is about to blow up that church and together we'll embrace and we'll circle around and and circle this movie as a great movie. So that's the best analogy I can do. I'll buy that. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.